This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is March 18th, 2021. Today, a look inside the world of the aptly named private assets. Though investing in this way isn't new, many don't know too much about it in large part because only the most sophisticated investors with large amounts of capital have been allowed to take part. Today, those investors are looking at private assets differently, expanding and shifting the role the investments play within a multi-asset class portfolio. To help us sort through all this and more, we asked two people who spend their days inside those private walls to give us a tour, starting with Brian Schmidt, Head of Product Management and Applied Research at Burgess, which provides data solutions to private asset investors and funds alike. Within the world of private asset classes, there's certainly a number of sub-asset classes that uh, makes it real for folks. So probably most, most folks are aware of private equity. So private equity is inclusive of both buyout and venture capital. Uh, buyout is where largely it's about taking a public company private to therefore make improvements and then uh, relaunch or relist that that company to as a public company. Venture capital is about um, taking equity investment early in the early stages of startups and the like and bringing those to IPO or to a strategic buyer. Private debt is another private asset class, similar to private equity, but the, the stakes that are being taken in the portfolio companies are through credit or through, uh, through loans that are being provided to private companies. And then there's private real assets, such as real estate, infrastructure, or natural resources. And through private real assets, both equity and debt stakes can be taken in those either properties or projects or the like. We'll talk more about private equity, private debt, and private real assets later on. For now, let's look at the ways in which investors can access them all. Now, institutional investors can invest in private asset classes through various types of investment vehicles, including through fund of funds, through funds, through co-investments, and can take a stake directly in the underlying private company through, through a direct. Brian went on to explain that a co-investment is called that because it exists along with, rather as part, of the money an investor has in a particular fund. The fund manager, who's also known as general partner or GP, still may be the one to arrange this deal, and the potential investment can be a fund holding. The difference is the investor puts money directly into that company. But getting back to how the funds work. So take, for example, an investment in a private equity fund that may focus on, let's say, buyouts or ventures. So in the fund's life cycle, there's kind of three phases. There's the investment phase, the investment stage, where the GP is finding opportunities or finding companies to invest in. There's the growth stage, that post-investment from the GP into the underlying portfolio company. It's about that GP working with that underlying portfolio company to grow the company, right? So to make improvements and grow the company. And then eventually the third phase of, of a fund's life cycle is the harvesting stage, where that GP is looking for opportunities to realize the gains through, let's say, an IPO or through strategic sale. So given that life cycle, the cash flows between the GP and the investor, so GP being the fund manager, um, those cash flows are, are not at the discretion of the investor. So the investor committed capital up front, and at the end of the day, the GP has the discretion of when to call capital calls, so when that money is going from the LP, the investor, to the GP, or when distributions are being made from the GP back to the back to the investor. So again, the cash flows are at the discretion of the fund manager, 
because they're, they're calling capital when they see the opportunity to invest. Now, that control of the cash flows by the general partner, these capital calls where any portion of committed money can be, well, called for or demanded, that's an important distinction between private and public capital markets. It also brings us to the key aspect of liquidity, or more to the point, private assets illiquidity. And for that, we turn to... I'm Peter Shepard. I'm head of fixed income, multi-asset class, and private asset research uh, at MSCI. I've been here for about 14 years, leading a a big research team, doing lots of different things. But private assets had been a, a big focus of ours over the years, developing models for private equity, private real estate, private infrastructure. I think around liquidity specifically, one of the, the biggest things that, that asset owners grapple with is when you, when you sign up for private equity, you know, it's not like an, a, a typical mutual fund or something where you, you, know, you give them your money and they deploy it. You sign up for private equity and you're making a commitment of capital and then they go hunt around looking for deals. And when they found a deal where they want to deploy that capital, they call it. That structure gives the, the, the general partner the, the leeway they need to do what they do. But the liquidity burden that it puts on the asset owner can be pretty tricky. The asset owner can be in a position where all of a sudden uh, they are asked to come up with a lot of capital quickly because there's especially in a market downturn, this, this can happen. There's a market downturn. The, the general partner sees market opportunities. You know, they, stuff looks cheap in a crisis to the general partner. They call you know, a whole lot of capital in the middle of a crisis, right when liquidity is sort of at a premium. And the asset owner has to come up with, with that liquidity uh, over a very short horizon. That kind of risk is, is front and center for uh, for a lot of private capital investors. And that liquidity risk is, is probably more important than the other, what we would normally think of as a liquidity risk, that like once you're in it, you're in it. And so managing your liquidity through that is an important part of investing in private assets. Um, understanding, you know, being able to estimate when capital calls are going to be received, being able to estimate when distributions are going to be provided, and be able to just manage your liquidity through through that horizon. Um, kind of in addition to that, or maybe kind of alongside of that, again, publics versus privates. I mentioned earlier, when you allocate to, to publics, on day one, that allocation is made in privates. On day one, you're making a commitment. So you're committing $100 million, of which $10 million of that might be called you know, in, in the third month or the sixth month. So when you committed the $100 million, that money is not in the ground being, you know, earning the premiums that, that you would expect it to be earning in, in the private asset class. So because of that, you have to plan appropriately, uh, a method that's called pacing. You need to pace your commitments over time such that you achieve the allocations that you desire within your portfolio. There's tools that, that, that Burgess provides and other provides to allow you to, let's say, appropriately pace your commitments such that you can achieve the asset allocation that that you desire in, let's say, your strategic asset allocation planning across your your portfolio. Illiquidity is not just a risk, however, especially if you're a long-term investor. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, investments in private assets are growing. I asked Peter why he thinks that's happening. I think there's a a few different things, actually. So I think the the biggest is probably they've seen returns and they, they want a part of it. So 
the performance of a lot of different segments of, of, of private capital has been pretty extraordinary for, for decades, by and large. Um, and people want a piece of it, I think. You know, there's been, among asset owners, the Yale model, um, which is, is uh, kind of an old story at this point, drove a lot of asset owners to, to, to be much more aggressive in uh, going into private capital for, for long-horizon investors who don't necessarily need liquidity. But I think there's actually more to it than, than just that story. Another big theme that we're seeing today is a lot of asset owners reevaluating their income portfolio. The income portfolio has been uh, a big part of a lot of large institutional portfolios, both for income, but also for kind of the potential risk hedging properties that that fixed income has played uh, in a lot of portfolios. When when equity uh, goes down, uh, bonds have tended to go up and, and the two have balanced out. In today's yield environment, though, a lot of investors are questioning both pieces of that. They're questioning you know, there's not as much, nearly as much income to be had in fixed income anymore. Uh, and then they're also questioning, you know, how far down can yields go to provide that, that sort of flight to quality cushion. So I think a lot of institutional investors are looking at a lot of real assets, potentially replacing uh, a, a significant uh, part of fixed income in the old portfolio. Um, though, you know, that said, I think uh, maybe they need to recognize that, yes, the income is similar, but the, the characteristics can be very different. There can be a lot more growth sensitivity um, and, and different inflation characteristics, different real rate sensitivity in these real assets, different from fixed income. And so it, it, it plays that role, but it, it also plays different roles in the portfolio. And asset owners shifts in approaches to portions of their private asset holdings well, that goes beyond swapping real assets for private debt. Traditionally, investors looked at private assets as, you know, there's equity, there's fixed income, there's private. So let's make an allocation decision to each of those buckets. But I, I think a lot of investors are realizing, wait a minute, okay, operationally, yeah, a lot of the private assets have similar uh, operational considerations. Um, but as far as what's driving the returns, private equity in some ways, can look a lot more like public equity than private real estate. So rather than saying, let's allocate to private assets and then figure out where we want it, increasingly they're shifting to a more factor-based asset allocation framework where they say, let's, how much overall growth sensitivity do we want? Or, or, or maybe how much generalized equity exposure do we want? And then let's figure out how much of that is coming from, from, from public equity versus private equity, et cetera. Yes, and this continues to evolve, and I think this varies by institution. You know, I'd say ten years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. Ten years ago, you would have seen the the, the privates being a completely separate team than the, than the publics. Um, these days, it's more integrated across the portfolio. Then, listen, at, you know, which tools? There, there's certainly still someone at the end of the day selecting which funds to invest in within the privates portfolio. So, there's portfolio managers that are focusing on the the private asset classes, but at the end of the day, there's there's a CIO who's looking across the total plan and, and whether or not he, he or she is deciding whether or not to, to, to distinguish between private and public, I think varies across, across the spectrum. This total portfolio approach also exposes a truth Peter feels many may not have recognized. So private asset valuations tend to be quite smooth. They are sort of subjective and, and they get updated kind of as typically as a GP um, changes their 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 books. 
a lot of investors, you know, had thought that because the valuations look smooth and uncorrelated, uh, that they're low risk. And and increasingly, investors have recognized, wait a minute, no, that's that's the valuations are smooth, the valuations are uncorrelated, but the underlying value is exposed to the same economy as everything else. So if if the economy tanks, it doesn't matter if it's private equity or public equity, public real estate or private real estate the assets are exposed to the same economy and, and exposed to a lot of the same systematic factors driving everything. Now, not all of them. Uh, the public market equity risk premium can, can jump around and driving, driving a lot of noise in the public markets. The liquidity premium uh, can, can affect private assets very differently from public. But it's this understanding of, of to what extent are private assets exposed to a lot of these same uh, factors driving everything else to what extent are they different is, is a key question that has really been obscured by the lack of uh, transparency and the, and the lack of, of really robust valuations. Okay. Who had transparency on their private assets bingo card? I think as allocations continue to rise, if, if they do, I, I think it, it, it's unlikely that it would conti- continue under this current structure. I think you need more transparency into the space um, you know, risk management today is, is pretty patchy. Um, that might be okay when private assets are a tiny sliver of the overall portfolio. But as, as more and more capital is allocated there, uh, you know, a lot of the standards that have been commonplace in public assets may need to, to take hold in, in private assets as well. All of this reminds me of conversations we've had on this program actually pretty recently around ESG and climate, as as well as diversity, inclusion, and equality efforts. Now, those were, again, talking about listed assets. But in terms of transparency and reporting with ESG and climate specifically, it seemed to come down to a willingness by companies to disclose. But more importantly, even, it came down to standards or lack thereof. How does this compare in the private space? Yeah, it's, it's listen. It, it's similar. So, in terms of willingness, there's certainly a willingness of of managers to pr- provide disclosure to to help their investors. That's not undeniable in terms of their their willingness to provide transparency. Um, the questions then become, you know, what is needed to satisfy the, the the investors' needs and how to go about accomplishing that. Listen, at the end of the day, you know, Burgess serves over a thousand um, institutional investors in in private assets. And the information that we are provided is the same information that's provided to those investors directly. We just uh, make sense of it and, and kind of put it all together in a convenient form for consumption by, by the end clients in aggregate across the entire portfolio. So different asset managers have different levels of staff, different, uh, different capacity to different things. So at the end of the day, listen, there's investors' needs vary across the, the investor cycle. Um, it's up to a GP to then satisfy those needs in the best way they can. Uh, but those GPs, uh, you know, vary from from GP to GP. The smaller ones may not have the capacity to satisfy all the needs of the the end investors, um, but the larger ones have the staff and the and the people that can help do so. And given given what you said, especially around the willingness, in in your view, from your experience, do you see transparency increasing even more so? Over time, uh, undoubtedly. So, so the, the the demands are continuing to increase across the spectrum. 
so listen, example, the, the two examples I would highlight, uh, one is the private debt. So, so increasing levels of allocations to private debt, increasing numbers of managers either launching private debt funds or so if you they were already in private debt, they're now launching newer and larger funds. And if they weren't in private debt before, they are now increasing their capabilities to include private debt. Uh, if you looked three or four years ago, the levels of disclosure around the, the terms and conditions within the securities within private debt funds was limited. Uh, we've just gone through and reviewed all our manager reporting and have found uh, uh, disclosure to, to have improved significantly since it did three or four years ago. And that's um, no doubt driven by the demands of the institutional investors in, in those funds. So I would continue, I would expect to continue to see that to improve in terms of levels of disclosure around the security details required in private debt. Um, in addition, I'd say the, the second topic is around ESG, right? So ESG, uh, that is an area that there's a lot that can be done with the data that's already provided today in terms of um, details on portfolio companies, in terms of the industries and sectors of the underlying portfolio companies. There's a lot that can be done to infer, let's say, the ESG qualities or sustainability dimensions, if you will, of a client's portfolio in, in aggregate based on the information that's available today. But to do more than what's available today, to get very specific around portfolio companies, let's say um, carbon exposure or portfolio companies' um, uh, impact in different sustainability dimensions, um, especially let's say, you know, say the climate, understanding the underlying operations of portfolio companies, where the factories are and the like, that's going to require a different additional information on those underlying portfolio companies. So if the GPs can provide more information on the underlying portfolio companies, and when it's not available, how can we infer based on the data that is available, um, the data points that are required for, for, let's say, for climate, for regulations such as SFDR and EU, EU taxonomy and the like? I heard a general partner recently say, you know, this is problem number one for us is how do we make sense of climate and, and ESG? Um, and, and clearly, you know, limited partners, asset owners um, are, are, are feeling that, that same sense of urgency. It's funny, a, a year or so ago, it was, it was, especially in the U.S., it was kind of off the radar. And now it's just front and center. I think climate is probably um, where, where people are, are, are seeing most urgency. And that's, you know, understanding the physical risk of, of a property is a big part of that. And, and we've, um, we've explored that, um, you know, climate value at risk for, uh, for real estate um, but then there's, you know, there's, there's climate risk to private equity is a, is a big focus. Uh, and then beyond climate, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of, of other ESG there that is a focus. It's a hard problem, certainly. Um, but it, it's been amazing to see uh, almost overnight how, you know, private markets have gone from, from zero to, uh, to not zero to 60 because they're not there yet, but overnight. Uh, the, the importance of climate and ESG and, and private capital went from off the radar to front and center. There's one more stop we need to make as we travel down this transparency path. It has to do with increasing the ability of investors and private fund managers to analyze and benchmark their portfolios. I started by asking Peter about it. I'm also curious, um, you mentioned factors before. Obviously, again, we keep drawing these parallels between public and private, 
factor investing um, has become a way to dig deep into not only a portfolio, but individual holdings to, as you know better than I, to see what what drivers of risk and return am I actually exposed to? How is that playing out across private assets? You know, you mentioned the parallels between public and private. And I think that a key question that we we have in a lot of these things is, to what extent will private assets converge more toward public, both in their returns, but also in, I think, sort of the, the, the practices of managing them? Versus how are private assets just fundamentally different uh, and will always have, you know, a different framework around them. And, and there's, there's not, it's not either or. I, I think it's going to be, um, it, it's going to be some combination of, of both. And, and, and factors is, a, is an area that, that I think highlights that. So we're looking at factors for private assets on two different levels. So at kind of the maybe kind of the asset allocation level or, or the, the, the overall kind of systematic behavior level, we're looking at what exposures do private assets have to traditional factors, those, those traditional systematic risks? How much of private factor or private asset returns are due to what we think of as these sort of pure private effects? So liquidity premium being a big one, but there's others. You know, venture capital moves... So venture capital is extremely idiosyncratic. You know, individual companies can be wildly successful or, or, or fail. But there's also this really strong sort of overall venture capital factor that we see that is, you know, kind of the mood in, in Silicon Valley or the mood on Sand Hill Road uh, or, you know, the overall you know, SoftBank pours a bunch of money into venture capital and valuations go up, uh, say. Um, and so there's, there's that level of, of factor that, that we see, and, 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 and it's very important. Another kind of factor, though, that we're just exploring, and we've been ex- starting to explore this in private real estate, is more traditional sort of style factors. Uh, so style factors, you know, traditionally, you know, value, size, momentum. Well, they're not going to carry over exactly. So momentum doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a, for a private asset, potentially. But what we've been what we've been seeing in, in in private real estate is that a lot of the a lot of what we think of as factors in in the public markets are actually getting at at really important and potentially universal sort of investment themes. So value is 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 universal. Understanding you know the the fundamentals driving uh, uh, an asset's value relative to its market value. There, there's something fundamental about that. Liquidity can be fundamental. Um, sustainability is something that we see cutting across a lot of different asset classes, uh, certainly. And so what we're realizing is that you can't just sort of copy and paste from public to private, but a lot of the things that drive investors in one market are, are related. They, they show up in the private markets as well. And we're starting to, to see that, yes, these factors or, or variations of these factors can make sense in these other markets. The idea of a venture capital factor is is fascinating, and it reminds me of a lot of the work that's been done recently in terms of different types of consumer sentiment factors, or even um, a an ability to have employees work virtually factor. Different different ways to um, analyze and get at what may be driving performance. So that's that's fascinating, especially with something as, as you say, idiosyncratic 
as venture capital? You know, what you just described there are factors that drive, you know, it doesn't matter whether something is public or private, you know, the, the shift to working from home is relevant. It's relevant for a lot of public companies. Yes, it's relevant for a lot of private real estate, certainly. And it's relevant for a lot of the venture capital that, that is, is uh, exploiting these opportunities. So that's a factor. I think that's a great example of, you know, the type of factor that, that you shouldn't, it, it, you know, it's not going to keep, keep to one asset class. That's, that's the type of thing that, that really we should be looking for where that shows up across the spectrum. How do the, the portfolio managers that focus on private assets, uh, how, how to benchmark them? And so, you know, one question is what, you know, what index is used or what benchmark is used? Um, some typical ones that are, that are used in the, in the market are just, let's say, an absolute return, a public index or a listed index plus some spread, or using a private data set like Burgess, um, where you're we're actually benchmarking yourself to or benchmarking that portfolio manager or that portfolio to uh, a, a portfolio of private assets. And then you could be even taken even further that says, hey, I want to benchmark my portfolio to private assets, but I want to um, I want that benchmark to consider the constraints that I had in my portfolio in terms of what asset classes I'm able to invest in, what um, what size of funds and do I have access to? So it can go every, across the spectrum from, let's say, an absolute return hurdle to, to, to beat from a benchmark perspective to a, a customized um, portfolio of private assets is the appropriate benchmark for, for the privates piece. So second question is what, what performance measure, right? We talked about the, the differences in, in the private markets in terms of the cash flows being not at your discretion. So what performance metrics do you use when you're just looking at the privates? And then finally, questions of, okay, once you decide on those two things, you know, what methodologies do you need to use? So, uh, you know, we at Burgess would, would, would recommend benchmarking a portfolio to a dynamically constructed uh, portfolio of private assets and benchmarking your portfolio's performance relative to pooled calculations on that dynamically constructed benchmark. But that's when I'm looking at, you know, that evaluating that portfolio manager within the uh, within private assets. We may have strayed a bit and crossed paths with the advanced private asset store, but as we find ourselves nearing the exits, I think it would be helpful to turn to Peter once more for a final thought. Basically, what's the headline message here? Looking at private assets, not as a monolithic asset class at all, but as a bunch of different asset classes that are different from each other and share some similarities with with public assets. Increasingly, that's the direction that, that a lot of the most sophisticated asset owners are going in their asset allocation. That's all for this week. Joe and I would like to thank our colleague, Mary Hall, for helping us bring this all together. And of course, our thanks to Peter and Brian, and to all of you for listening. Next up on Perspectives, we'll welcome back Hatendra Varsani for our quarterly factors and focus check-in, including an in-depth look at value and ESG as driver of risk and return. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.